0: Thank you, Stu, very much. Good morning, everyone. It is a joy to see all of you, and to those of you who are online with us, welcome. Hopefully this this week the broadcast will continue. It cut off about 11 minutes in last week for some reason. I think uh, I didn't have it on Do Not Disturb, and I've got some message, and if I get a message on this phone... While it's broadcasting, it kicks the broadcast off. And I was so focused out here, I didn't recognize it. So hopefully, we'll be on for the whole time. We're able to get it on uh, sermon audio, though, with our audio recording. So at least we have that back up. All right, um, let us turn, please, to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Now, I'm going to be taking a look, Lord willing, uh, through... All the way through the end, of, well yeah, the end of chapter four, but um, won't take time to read all of that at this moment. I'm going to read just from uh, Romans chapter 3, beginning at verse 21 and read on to the end of chapter three uh, for our scripture reading this morning. And I'd invite you please if you'd stand with me for the reading of God's holy Word. to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Well, uh, then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, but by the law of faith. God adds His blessing to the reading and hearing of His Holy Word. Please be seated. I'm sure that many of you, most of you, I hope, are familiar with the opening chapters of the book of Romans. Once you get past the initial greetings, which are very uh, friendly and cordial and so on, uh, Paul then goes on to describe the condition of those who are apart from God those who are in rebellion against God, those who are stubbornly resisting the gospel of Jesus Christ. And those opening chapters of this letter to the Romans really constitute uh, an opening salvo on our consciences. Uh, We take a beating um, uh, when we look at ourselves in light of what we read there. And as we read of the dreadful state of our condition before God, apart from Him. Your reaction should be like that of the Philippian jailer. What must I do to be saved? You know, fallen man does does want to know what he can do to be accepted by God. But Romans 3.20 is a death knell to the hope that, that fallen man has, that he can save himself by his own efforts. As we read there in verse 20, uh, by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight since through the law comes knowledge of sin. All best that the law can do is point up our sins to us and leave us there apart from grace, apart from the mercy of God. Uh, So there is nothing you can do where you where you fail though God has provided a way when our hearts are awakened by his gracious call his righteousness fills up what you and I lack now Paul is dealing here with the stubbornness of the of the of the heart that clings to the belief and particularly he'd been talking to the Jews that were among the Roman church and uh, who were very Proud of their connection to uh, Judaism and that they had the prophets and that they had the law and they had all the history and Moses and the the great uh, works of God that were part of their heritage and you know what a blessing uh, really that is i mean it, it's a, it, those are wonderful things but but uh, it was easy for uh, the Jews of the time to cling to those things and think that that is all that they needed since they possessed the law, they must have by extension possessed also God's righteousness. The truth is that God's righteousness as we must, the righteousness that we must have uh, posted to our account is is really apart from the law. In in a way. Um, The law has been fulfilled by Jesus Christ. But as far as our Righteousness and our standing as righteous before God. It's not about how well we do the law. We can't do it. We can't do it perfectly. Uh, you can only be justified by faith. As we come to the third installment in our little brief series on the the five solas of the Reformation: the Scripture alone, grace alone, faith alone, Christ alone, and glory to God alone. We come to faith alone, or sola. Fide, as it is in Latin, justified only by faith. This doctrine really is at the very heart of the disagreement between Rome and Protestantism. If salvation is based upon faith as a merit, if we view having faith and exercising faith as a merit or a work on our part, Uh, just it's a merit in and of itself, then Rome is right and we are hopeless. And the reason we're hopeless is that no one's faith is perfect enough to satisfy God. No one's faith is perfect enough to save himself. But if faith is no merit at all, faith is not um, something that earns us God's favor, but faith is actually only a grasping of what is offered freely in Christ. Then the whole papacy falls, and the true faith prevails. Uh, Luther asserted that thought. Um, and reading a, <clears throat> an article by uh, Pastor Terry Johnson um, in the uh, Banner of Truths, one of Banner of Truth uh, uh, publications, he made this uh, comment: Calvin, in his debate with Cardinal Sadoleto said that justification by faith was the first and keenest subject of controversy between us. Remove the knowledge of this doctrine, he argued, and the glory of Christ is extinguished, religion is abolished, the church destroyed, and the hope of salvation utterly overthrown. So this is not a light matter. In fact, eternity rests upon it eternity for us uh, in the presence of God, that our justification is by faith alone and not by works. Now, before we delve into Paul's argument here in Romans chapter 3 and 4, we need to answer a fundamental question. What is faith? Now, um, I'll pause for a moment here to recommend a book to you. If you've never read J. Gresham Machen's book, What is Faith?, get a copy of it. It's readily available. It's not expensive. You need to read it. It's phenomenal discussion of this subject. I'm going to cover this in about three minutes. So there's a lot more that can be said. Get To the heart of it, though, you could summarize faith as confidence in another's testimony. For example, in Matthew chapter 7, when Jesus tells uh, the disciples there in the Sermon on the Mount, uh, he says to them, he that hears my words and does them is like a wise man. That kind of attention and confident enough to not just hear it, but to live it, uh, to take it in and obey it. It, I'm sure everyone here is familiar with the book of Hebrews chapter 11, that great uh, faith chapter as it's called, begins with now faith is, is the substance of things hoped for. That's the assurance or the expectation of things hoped for. The evidence um, or the confidence uh, in something that is substantive and sound. The evidence of things not seen. The faith that we're talking about here is not wishful thinking, in other words. It's not hoping against hope that something might happen, or that God might be who he says he is, or that Jesus might have done what he said he did. Faith in Him is confidence in that what God has said, He has done. What God has accomplished is worthy and eternal. And therefore, all of our, uh, all of our confidence can be in Him. Uh, many of you are familiar with uh, Dr. Joel Beakey, uh, who uh, is president of Puritan uh, Reformed Theological Seminary and uh, quite an author in his own right. But in his comment on this matter of sola fide. He uh, he made this statement that faith <clears throat> is uh, decisive, wholehearted reliance on God's gracious promise. Just a little longer way of saying confidence in another's testimony, but adds some important nuances to it. It is utter reliance. It is decisive, not wishy-washy, but wholeheartedly uh, depending upon what God has said, you know, a common illustration of this uh, that uh, you've probably heard many times from other other uh, preachers from time to time. You may even have heard it from me uh, as well, because I, I like this illustration. But, you know, um, when my uh, uh, my granddaughters are uh, they we, we like we like to give big hugs when we see each other and they get excited and uh, they've all done this at one time or another. The, thankfully, the older they've gotten and the little heavier they've gotten, they haven't done this quite as much. But when they're younger and smaller, uh, they, they come running with their arms open, and they will leap at me and expect me to catch them. And... Um, uh, I just want to say right off the bat that it is due to none of that that I've had a couple of back surgeries. Those were totally unrelated. <laughs> but I uh, just reminded that again here the other day, I came up to the house and they were at the house and and uh, Jalen came running and uh, launched herself at me and expected to be caught. It's that kind of decisive reliance upon the Lord, right? That little children have in their in their fathers and grandfathers and grandmothers and uh, all of that, that they want to come and they want to be held, and they're not taking no for an answer, and um, they come right at it, arms open wide, and they jump. And particularly if I say, come on, they have absolute trust in what I've said to them, that I'm not going to drop them. Or, you know, "Ah, I was just kidding, you know. No, no. That is what reliance on God's gracious promise is really all about, that kind of attitude. John Calvin <clears throat> stated this, stated, defined faith this way, a sure and firm knowledge of God's divine mercy towards me. And I like what Calvin uh, adds there uh, in, in making it personal. It's not just, well, we know that God does these things out there somewhere. But we take it into ourselves that this is for me. This is what God has done. Uh, Following right along with um, the words of the apostle, when he's talking to the Philippian jailer, Paul says to him, you know, when the guy says, what must I do to be saved? And what what does he tell him? Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you and your house shall be saved. It's this personal taking in of what, Uh, God has said about himself. But you cannot manufacture this kind of saving faith. You can only know this saving faith by the work of the Holy Spirit as he works in you to regenerate you, make you alive out of of the the condition of being dead in your trespasses and sins and granting you repentance and granting you this kind of faith to cast yourself upon him uh, with everything that you have. The Spirit's work was sent, the Apostle says in Acts 26, to open their eyes, to turn them from darkness to light. This is why he was commissioned to go to the Gentiles. Um, And from the power of Satan to God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and an inheritance among those who are sanctified by faith in me. In Romans chapter 8, Paul says, The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and joint heirs with Christ, if indeed we suffer with Him, that we may also be glorified together. This is the nature of saving faith that has as its object the finished work of Jesus Christ. Now, there's a difference between saving faith, as you might imagine, and general faith, if I can put it that way. And that distinction is summed up in one word, submission. Submission. It's not just belief. Belief by itself is deadly, beloved. You may look at what? what? Well, all of you familiar with James chapter 2? You say there's one God. You do well. The devils also do What? believe, and they tremble. They stand condemned because they are in rebellion. They know who God is better than we do. Oh, they believe. Oh, yeah. But they're not in submission. They're in rebellion. And that really is the key. When we come to Him, it's not enough to say, well, I believe in God. There's a lot of people that say they believe in God. But they live as if God doesn't exist. Saving faith is shown, James would go on to say, by, by your works. that's demonstrates whether it's real or not. So, there's that difference that's there. Well, that one faith, Ephesians chapter 2, we looked at last time uh, in that passage. The faith is God given by His grace. The others, the devils have and uh, we certainly want to have more than that. Alright, now, with that in mind, then let's look at Romans chapter 3 and we will uh, we're going to motor through this. Uh, it's tempting to want to dig into every, every jot and tittle of this passage, but uh, because of the nature of this series and what I'm trying to accomplish and put all this together in the context of our, of our uh, thinking about the Reformation and the heritage that is ours through that, I'm not going to take the time to do that. I've preached through this text, actually, uh, in prior years here, it's been quite a while, uh, where I went into it a lot more detail, but I uh, want to really want to think about how we are to think about um, uh, faith in relationship to our works and really concentrate on, on the nature and the object of our faith as Paul talks about it here in Romans chapter 3. So beginning at verse uh, 21 in the passage that we read, the righteousness of God has been manifested or made clear. We might be able, we might say that God's righteousness is perceived through the eyes of faith. Now notice, this is a, really a, an important distinction in verse 21. that The righteousness that God has and that God has uh, that God gives to us and uh, imputes to our account is something that is witnessed to by prior revelation. It's not created by that prior revelation. It's witnessed to. Now I say, why is that important? What was the prior revelation that is is indicated here in verse 21? The law, the law. <clears throat> You see, if God's righteousness was created by the law, when when he wrote the law and that instituted his righteousness, then indeed we would be bound, each one of us, to keep that law because that law created righteousness, and if we do not have uh, perfect adherence to it, we're doomed. Well, we can't keep it, and we're doomed anyway. But the righteousness of God existed prior to the giving of the law to Moses. And in fact, Romans chapter 1 makes that very clear, that from the beginning of the world, what was right and who God is was evident. It was made explicit in the law through the, as it revealed to the nation of Israel. But it was simply a witness to who God already is. It didn't make God something really important for us to keep that distinction. The law and the prophets bear witness to it. But if we are to uh, have access to that righteousness, we can only have that access through Jesus Christ. And that's what verses uh, um, 22 and following uh, lay out for us. That this righteousness that is of God this righteousness that is the basis of our fellowship with Him and the safety of our souls, that righteousness is perceived by all who believe, not just the Jews, but by all who believe, all who recognize their sin, to recognize that we have fallen short, we've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's no distinction. We, we, Everyone who expresses that faith um, by God's gift, recognizing their sin, may perceive this righteousness, may, may be beneficiaries of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Um, all who are looking for redemption in Jesus himself, verse 24 through 26, were justified by his grace. We looked at Sola Grazia last time. But we're justified by his grace as a gift, through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward. Jesus is the sent one. He, this is a uh, really an indirect way, Paul's sort of describing what the work of the Messiah is, it's an indirect way of of talking about the Messiah here, as, as the one who was put forward, who would be the the basis of the forgiveness of our sins. He would provide that foundation. And that would happen because, as Paul says, to the Corinthian church in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, he, he, that is God the Father, has made him, that is Jesus Christ, to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. Now, look at these verses here in 25 and 26, and there's a there's a phrase here that I hope kind of jumps out at you a little bit because it's something that is a is a phrase or an idea that gets brought into this whole discussion about faith and works and what's earned and what isn't and election and all those other things. As we read there in um, uh, verse 25, this was to show uh, that is uh, the... Uh, Jesus uh, being put forward as the, as the uh, forgiveness for sin by his blood. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, or patience, he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. A little phrase that he might be just. You know, God's justice gets called into account all the time by wicked men and by even believers who struggle with his sovereignty and struggle with his, his uh, right to do uh, what is right in his own sight without asking us for our permission. He made all of this provision through the Lord Jesus Christ so that he might be just. The emphasis upon God's justice here is very strong. Would God be just if He just willy-nilly forgave us all of our sins? Said, well, it doesn't matter. I know I gave the law. I know my righteousness is actually from eternity, but it doesn't really matter if you don't. As long as I'm just nice and loving and yeah, you come in. Is that how that works? No, it doesn't. Um, It would not be just if He said, And in Paul's context here, he's saying to these in the present day, the um, Lord in his patience has waited, and this kind of goes along with the whole idea of waiting till his cup was full, until the fullness of the time, and all those kinds of phrases about God's providence and the way that he works. If he's going to be just, um, He takes into he, he was patient and overlooked certain things in the past until Jesus should come and make all things new so that all of his children would know the benefit of this. That's justice. He doesn't have an arbitrary set of justice for the Old Testament and an arbitrary set for the New Testament and an arbitrary set for us today. It's all one God and one plan and one justice that is fulfilled by him in the Lord Jesus Christ. Because he is the one who is sent. Uh, Again, to quote uh, Beakey, in an article, Justification by Faith Alone, He says, we are justified not merely by faith. This is a huge distinction, people. Get this this distinction. We are not justified merely by faith. But we are justified, he says, by faith in Christ. Not because of what faith is, but because of what faith lays hold on and receives. I've quoted this in years past, uh, from time to time when it's appropriate uh, hopefully nobody remembers, so this will still be okay. Uh, there was a song, a country song, um, number of number of years ago. I don't know, it's probably 20 plus years ago now. Uh, walk, walk on faith. You ever know that song? Am I dating myself? I think I probably am. It's uh oh, it's a real feel good song. And the chorus goes something like. Yeah, and I'm kind of almost embarrassed to say that I remember it. But it's only because I've been doing it as a sermon illustration for a few times. But it goes something like, uh, "Yeah, I'm going to walk on faith, trust in love. It's that kind of idea that I have faith in faith. Because I've got faith, because I'm feeling positive, because I'm looking for the good things, then all's going to be well. And that's looking at faith as a merit. It's looking at faith as a work. It's looking at faith as something that we can conjure up to have good feelings about, and God will be happy with us because we had faith. No, God is not happy with us because we have faith. He's happy with us because our faith is placed in the one in whom he is supremely pleased, Jesus Christ, his only son. So Beeky's absolutely right that we're justified by faith in Christ because of what faith lays hold of and receives. Now, in verses uh, also in twenty-five and twenty-six, here uh, again we see Jesus set forth the one whom God has put forward as a propitiation, as the forgiveness for sins. And in that, uh, let me. Uh, uh, oh, we sang a song by Horatius Bonar in action today, and uh, one of the reasons that uh, we did that because I was going to quote him today. So I'm quoting him uh, as well. Jesus, my blood and righteousness. Beautiful, beautiful hymn. Listen to what Bonar has to say. Faith is not work, nor merit, nor effort, but the cessation from all of these stopping it. And the acceptance in place of them what another has done. Done completely. And forever. Marvelous statement. Let me read, to you, read that to you again. Faith is not work, nor merit, nor effort, but a cessation of all these. And the acceptance in place of them, what another has done, done completely and forever. Our Lord Jesus is the one who is set forward to forgive our sins. He, in Him alone is our hope, in Him alone should be our faith. And that faith, as we read last week in Ephesians chapter 2, is itself a gift of God. In verses 27 and 28 of this passage, um, <clears throat> this righteousness its perceived by faith um, it's, and, and perceived by those who believe. It's, verse 27 and 28 highlights the necessity of, that it is a requirement of faith alone. What becomes of our boasting? We, 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 don't, we have no basis to boast. Not of the law, none of our works, nothing. We have nothing else. It's the law of faith or the rule of faith. We hold that one is justified by faith apart from the works of the law. Paul says to the, Roman, uh, to the Galatian church in uh, chapter 2 of that letter, he says, Yet we know that a person is not justified by the works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. I love the way the Heidelberg Catechism summarizes this. uh, This is question 61, where they say that there is, quote, no other way than faith by which Christ's righteousness becomes ours. God did not ordain faith to be the instrument of justification because of some peculiar virtue in faith, but because faith is self-emptying and has no merit in itself. And then they quote Romans 4, therefore it is of faith that it might be by grace. Romans 4, 16, which we'll look at again here in just a moment. We recognize that it is faith alone. And we cannot add to it. We can't improve upon God's justification by bringing some merit of our own. Uh, Just as a a criminal who is guilty uh, cannot uh, improve upon his verdict by somehow now, um, uh, or get get off of the verdict uh, by somehow uh, adding to the payment uh, beyond which is already prescribed. A payment that, Someone else has to pay because what we have to pay is too great. Um, it'd be, it, you know, if, you were, if the death penalty would be required for you and someone else died in your place, you're dying as well. It doesn't add to their payment, is the idea. And yet, we think that way when it comes to salvation, if we're not careful, because we want to find some, some uh, comfort in our own contribution to our redemption when there is nothing for us to contribute and this righteousness is confirmed by the law's fulfillment look in verses uh, verse 30 and 31 uh, well 29 is, it starts off basically making it clear that this, is, this righteousness is to all this salvation is to all since God is one, God isn't divided, um, there's not one God for the Jews and one God for the Gentiles. He is the one <clears throat> who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. So he's not saying the law is, is bad and is to be jettisoned as of no value. He's saying that the law has been fulfilled. We're demonstrating that the purposes of the law have been fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ. We can't add anything to it. If we do, all we'll accomplish is adding further judgment for our presumption. The Arminian position of conditional predestination and faith under justification is, uh, Bickey describes it as a cruel hoax. And uh, that is very true. Because in that, Christ would be, uh, to quote John Owen, is but half a mediator. You can only secure the end of salvation, John Owen said, but not the means to it. Faith is not our rock, Beakey says. Christ is our rock. So we're, we're not saved by you know, fulfilling some conditions. Christ fulfilled all the conditions. Period. Done. Complete. And we are safe in him. But in just a couple of minutes here we're going to look at chapter 4. Is it not the Mosaic Code that is the Grand Testament to the truth that it's through ritual and duty that people come to God? That was the mindset of some of the people to whom Paul was writing. It's Also, the mindset of anyone who puts their hope in external religion, uh, even to the present day. But uh, if if Paul can show that the righteousness of God was imputed to man before Moses, then he establishes his argument that works are irrelevant when it comes to justification. And so he turns to Abraham, and that's what the discussion in chapter 4 is about. Take a look there where we note that Abraham, this, again, we won't take time to look through this whole chapter, but just skimming over the top, I, I'm trusting that you are familiar with Abraham's story, because that that story of how Abraham came to be regarded as righteous, or if you want to put it this way, God's righteousness was acquired by him, it came about because of faith. Abraham's story sets the pattern For your story, we see that in verses 1 through 3, and then also at the end of the chapter. What then shall we say was gained by Abraham, our forefather, according to the flesh? If he was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. What does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteous. You know, when you look at this passage in this chapter, there's a word that keeps cropping up over and over and over again. If you want to really really dig into the doctrine of justification by faith, as seen as it's worked out in the story of Abraham. You can spend a lot of time here in Romans chapter 4. But this term that gets repeated again and again and again is the word counted. Perhaps you noted that as we read through. Oh, no, we didn't read through it. Um, if, if you read through it, you'll know. It's repeated nine times through this passage. All the same word in the Greek. And it has to do with, uh, uh, well, it can be translated, counted. It's where we get our, it's, it's not a, sound doesn't sound this way in, in <clears throat> Greek, but the idea of imputation, of crediting something to somebody else's account is the idea of this word. And it's used over and over and over again. He's referring, Paul is referring back to the story of Abraham in Genesis chapter 15, where Abraham believed God concerning his son and God counted it to him as righteousness. Verses 23 through 25 of Romans uh, 4 here. But the words, it was counted to him, were not written for his sake, Abraham's sake alone, but for ours also. It will be counted to us who believe in Him who raised from the dead, Jesus our Lord, who was delivered up for our trespasses and raised for our justification. His work is what justifies because He fulfills all the law. And because just in, in Abraham's case, as he believed in what, he, he it was an emptying of himself, he had no hope within himself to see God's promises take place in his life. None whatsoever. But he believed God anyway. And God credited it to his account. Credited it to his account. That um, he stood in a position of favor and acceptance before God because the righteousness of God. Um, God could look on his own righteousness and be pleased. He he couldn't look on ours. Now, let's think about this Righteousness that's gained by faith and what it accomplishes. And I'm going to go through this very quickly in verses 4 through 24. We're going to sum this up by saying that righteousness gained through faith brings blessedness to us. And look at the blessings that are here. In verse 4, Now to the one who works, his wages are not counted as a gift, but is due. The blessedness of receiving a gift. Anybody like receiving gifts? Yes! I knew I could count on you. And yes, boys, thank you very much. And I'm sure that they're not the only ones here in the congregation that like gifts. The blessedness of receiving a gift. What a peace there is to know that our righteousness comes to us and our standing with God comes to us Solely because He desires to do it because He loves us. Um, you know, the, the standard version of the whole Santa Claus myth... I uh, hope I'm not stepping on any parents' toes here, but <clears throat> anyway... Okay, sorry, not sorry. Anyway, <laughs> what is one of the major motivi- motivating things in the whole Santa Claus myth? Better be good, Right? So you get that gift and it's used as an arm-twisting measure, right? And poor kids, you know, poor kids, and they're writing letters to Santa and they're doing all this stuff and they're all worried, was I good enough? And we smile at that, we chuckle at that, we go, isn't that cute? It's not cute. Because Santa is ascribed divine properties. And a lot of people think God, grow up thinking God is just that way. And we write our, 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 our letters. We go to church. We give. We do good things. And let's see, if I do enough, I won't get a lump of coal. I'll get something nice in my stocking. Right. What a blessing to just know that our Father loves us and He gives us our standing with Him because of what Jesus has done. And along with that, not just giving it to us, you know, holding His nose, <laughs> as it were. But when you look at verses 5 through 8, the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness, just as David also speaks of the blessing of the one to whom God counts righteousness apart from works. Look at the nature of this blessing. Blessed are those whose lawless deeds are forgiven and whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord will not count his sin. The blessing of absolute forgiveness The Church of Rome in the days of the Reformation, just as it does now, seeks to grant to itself and hold to itself the power of absolution, that the priest can say a few words and can forgive sins. And people live in dread that if they don't get those words of absolution before they die, that they're lost. And the Reformers said, no! You're absolved from your sins by faith in the only one who could pay for those sins, and who did so, the Lord Jesus Christ, once and for all. What a blessing to have that hope and that peace. The blessedness of freedom from ritual, verses 9 through 12, are all about that. It's not about circumcision or uncircumcision. Those those things serve their purpose, just as baptism and the Lord's Supper, those signs, they serve their purpose, but they're signs. They point to a reality. They're not the reality itself. If you make doing those things requirements to obtain God's righteousness, you're doomed. You're you're, you're saying, I I don't really believe that Jesus' work was enough. I've got to do this myself. But what a blessing to be free from that ritual. It doesn't mean that rituals and rites and other things don't have their proper place, but they've got to be kept in their proper place. Otherwise, we end up spending all our time looking at the window treatments instead of looking through the windows and seeing our Savior in the house. Verses 13 through 15 speak of a free promise, a promise that's realized through faith for the promise to Abraham and his offspring that he would be heir of the world. It didn't come through the law. God didn't say to Abraham, as long as you keep the Ten Commandments, uh, you're going to have offspring like the sand of the sea and the stars of the heavens. Why, could, why didn't that happen? Real simple. Ten Commandments hadn't been given yet. right? There was no Mosaic code. There was none of that that was there. There was none of that in place. It was simply God's promise. And the blessedness of that free promise, it wasn't a conditional one. It was a free promise to Abraham. And that's what this righteousness of, of faith is all about in verse 13. That, that, we're, that we access by faith. Compare that with what we saw in chapter 3 verse 27 when it speaks about the law of faith or the, 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 um, the path of, of, uh, that faith provides. Faith is the, the, the pathway to becoming conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. By believing in Him. That's the way it works. And it's blessed to be able to come to Him because of His promise and just believe it. And this is a gracious promise. The blessedness of God's grace. Again, faith is not a work. It's a grace that God gives to us. Verses 16 and 17. That's why it depends on faith, Paul says, in order that the promise may rest on grace. And be guaranteed to all his offspring, not just to the adherent of the law, but to the one who shares the faith of Abraham. In other words, not just to the, the, the Jew who's under the law and the nation, but those who believe in, in uh, the faith of the, uh, the promises made to Abraham. Just as Paul says to the Galatian church that if we are in Christ, we're uh, Abraham's heirs, heirs according to the covenant. Um, And then finally, the blessedness of hope in verses 18 through 25. This great hope that is ours. As Abraham believed in hope and hope he believed against hope that he should become the father of many nations as he's been told. He didn't weaken when he considered his own body, which is about 100 years old. Uh, The barrenness of his wife. Um, He didn't doubt and waver concerning God's promise. He grew strong, even to the point he was so convinced that God was able to do what he was promised through Isaac that he was prepared to sacrifice Isaac, literally expecting that God would deal with this somehow, but that somehow through Isaac, because that was the promise had been given. So I think Abraham implicitly, is evidence there that he believes in the resurrection. Um, In any case, his faith was counted to him as righteousness. Fully convinced that God was able to do what he has promised, which kind of gets us back to what uh, Calvin had to say, right? Um, fully convinced. Again, to quote uh, Terry Johnson, no other doctrine so illustrates the sinfulness of man and the futility of his efforts to save himself. No other doctrine so glorifies Christ as the sole ground of our salvation. No other doctrine so establishes the security of the believer in Christ as justification by faith. To have the righteousness of Christ declared to be yours, which is what justification is, God must act in grace toward you by regenerating your spiritually dead heart, by granting you faith in Christ and granting you repentance from your sins and recreating your soul no human law can do that. And God's law wasn't designed to do that either. His law was, to, was given to bring you to the realization that you cannot achieve His righteousness, that your only hope is justification by faith alone, in Christ alone. John Murray, a tremendous pastor and theologian, um, made this statement, justification by faith Is the Jubilee trumpet of the gospel because it proclaims the gospel to the poor and destitute whose only door of hope is to roll themselves in total helplessness upon the grace and power and righteousness of the Redeemer of the lost. It is that faith that the Lord uses to open the door to us who are the guilty and the rebel the sinner, the lost. Aren't you glad that there's good news for the guilty? Let's pray. Thank you, Heavenly Father, for your mercies and your grace. We thank you, Lord, for enabling us both to will and to do of your good pleasure, for enabling us, granting us the ability to express our faith to come to the end of ourselves and cling to Jesus Christ whom to know aright is eternal life lord let us look for aid and comfort and hope for in no other than the lord jesus let us not think that we can earn anything for christ has already earned it all We thank you for this blessing. Thank you for the faith that is ours that you give to us by grace. We pray these things in the name of our Savior.